one of my father's mantras when we cried as children was what is the problem and every problem has a solution from vetex international this is blunt dissection i'm dave nickel on today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Mandisa Green, the first black president of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Raised in Trinidad and Tobago, Mandisa grew up surrounded by animals and aspired to become a vet from an early age. However, her path into veterinary medicine was not clear nor easy. Mandisa, lacking role models and a pathway, faced rejections from her university applications in her first attempt, but luckily for us, she didn't let rejection get in her way. After first completing a degree in biological and medicinal chemistry, Mandisa was accepted to study veterinary medicine at Edinburgh's Royal Dick School of Veterinary Studies, graduating in 2008. Following four years in general practice, Mandisa then worked in a dedicated emergency clinic covering North Birmingham before transitioning to relief vet work to enable her to have a better work-life balance as she raised her family. Mandisa is a published author and along with being passionate about her own development, is also a strong advocate for veterinary nurses achieving and being used to their full potential. To this end, she's lectured at Harper Adams University, educating both student and qualified veterinary nurses. Now, just before we jump into to the episode a quick word from today's show sponsor which is the thrive community from us here at vetex if you are struggling with managing time feeling like an imposter or you're burned out then you need to make a change the good news is you're not broken and you're not a bad fit for the profession you're simply missing some super important skills no one teaches at university skills you will learn as part of the vetex community thrive is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills so join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. While this episode was fun to record, it was also at times difficult to hear and imagine the obstacles that I, as a white guy, did not face. Mandisa, as you're about to learn, is not someone who lets setbacks or ignorance get in the way of her goals though. Whether rejection and racism or mixing up both career and family, Mandisa has found a way to overcome the odds. She's a role model, shining a bright light on a pathway that remains hidden to many. One that leads to the very top of this profession. Mandisa is, among other things, a vet, teacher, leader, mother, and an outstanding example of how dreams can come true. But her story is also a reminder of how much more work there remains to do to attract talent from all walks of life and make sure our systems are set up so that anyone with the skills and desire to do so has a fair chance of calling veterinary medicine home. Listen in to learn, laugh, and be inspired by the trailblazing Dr. Mandisa Green. Mandisa Green, welcome to Blunt Dissection Podcast. It's awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Really looking forward to talking to you today. Okay, so this is just a full disclosure moment. So this is our second sort of recorded conversation. I am looking so closely at the record icon here to make sure it's actually recording. Because our first one you kindly did for us as a guest lecturer in the Vedex community, which was great. And somehow our recording platform glitched and didn't capture it, which was quite gutting, but just stokes up the intrigue and uh, desire to have a really amazing interview this time around. So super glad that you've carved out some time to have this conversation. I think the place to start for people who have not, they don't know anything about Mandisa Green or your work, let's jump into I think probably your backstory into veterinary medicine is a always feels like a great place to start and explore first of all what was your journey to veterinary medicine it's a little different I suspect than mine 
talk us through it and let's see where that takes us because I think there's a lot of interesting facets to jump into here. Okay, thank you. Um, so I think I started off at a very young age wanting to be a vet. My parents kind of lined us up, well, had a family meeting, they call it family meeting, and, and asked us all what we wanted to do. And, and mine was to look after animals. And they gave me that vocabulary that that was called being a vet. And so I wanted to do that. I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, and we had lots of animals around us. Uh, my mom was always rescuing animals that people didn't want. So we always had lots and lots of animals. And then that then led to my responsibility in the family being the person who was meant to look after the animals. So it was my job then to, you know, if they had been given any medication from the vet, to make sure that that was being administered properly and to check them for fleas and takes and mites, etc. And alert them grown up when they needed to have some treatment um, administered, well, when they needed to go to the vet and make vet visits. And, and in a way, I, I don't know really, I'm, I'm pretty sure my parents were looking over my shoulder at the time, but as a child, it really felt that I had all the responsibility and it was my own job to do. So I was curious what veterinary medicine looked like in Trinidad and Tobago at the time. Like role modeling, I'm sure you're going to talk about that. But you know, where did you learn? So like, I'm not sure I knew anything about fleas at all. Like I, I loved animals as well, but like, your knowledge sounds far in advance of what, what mine was at <laughs> a similar age. Like how old were you at that point by this? I thought you were well, like four or, or something like that. Eight or nine, right. Okay, yeah. okay. So, yeah. Arguably more advanced than mine when I graduated vet school. <laughs> Well, I think we, we had a harder job taking care of parasites in the Caribbean because it was kind of constant and, and very common. So it was very, especially uh, being part of a family, it was really important that we stayed on top of that stuff. And especially with my mom taking rescues all the time, it was more and more animals coming into the, the our environment that could introduce parasites. So it was really important that these animals were cared kind of constantly and looked after constantly. And also we didn't have, at that time, it, it looked very much like what you would see on the James Herriot um, shows where they had some sort of potion that they mixed up that you used to take care of the parasites. Not quite sure what was in it, but it was what we were using. So I'm not sure how effective it was. <laughs> it's highly toxic to humans and not very toxic to fleas. <laughs> Probably, probably, very likely. But so that's what we were using. And so, again, it didn't really, it was kind of constantly, the, the, the way to keep on top of it was just constantly um, comb the animals and make sure and check them for any fleas and ticks and mites, etc. So I think my mom showed me what a tick looks like and, and how to kind of pick them off and how to do the fleas and, and mites. And so that was kind of my job from a very early age. So um, loved that, enjoyed it. And I kind of, again, was very comfortable and confident in my role that I was going to be a vet and expected the universe to grant me my wish of becoming a vet. And so went into high school, decided I was going to be a vet, kind of had really not show a talent for sciences. Uh, so, but my parents really advocated and, and supported me through high school. And then when I, it was time to go to university, my siblings had already come back to the United Kingdom because we were born here. And so they had all come back and I said, well, I'm going to go to England and become a vet. And so that's fine, do it. So I came and I filled in my UCAS application and I, I applied to my four schools and didn't get into any flat out rejection from all of them. So I didn't know what to do. And my parents said, well, why don't you consider doing a science degree instead to kind of augment your 
sciences um, so that you're proficient in the sciences. So I did. I went to the University of Exeter for a degree in biological and medicinal chemistry. And while I was there, I really, really started interrogating in researching rather how I could get into vet school because I really wanted to go. And I knew that this degree was going to be a part of my journey to vet school, but it wasn't quite um, going to be the end. And so the more questions I asked and the more people I, I spoke to, I realized that work experience and I needed to get lots of work experience. So I sought out work experience from all the vets I could find in Exeter. And I used to go after my, um, so I'd go to university during the day and go to the vets in the evening. And on a Wednesday, when we finished at midday, I'd go for the rest of the day to the vets. And I'd, I'd done a variety of experience. And yeah, and then I applied into vet school in my final year of my first degree and got into my, all of my, I got offers. Um, and chose the University of Edinburgh and went there. So that's how I went to got into that. Okay, I have so many questions. <laughs> I actually want to jump back and ask about your parents. Okay. Clearly a big influence from what you've said. Very supportive. What did your parents do and, and how did they you know, how did they support you? Like and I'm particularly interested in this moment because I remember my journey in applying to vet school and I just think Goodness, like if I'd have gotten knocked back by all of them at a young age, that's a blow. Yeah. And so you transitioned very quickly into matter-of-factly saying what you did next. Yeah. But I bet you it wasn't like that in your head in the moment. Like, what was that experience like going through that? So maybe there's two separate questions there. I yeah. suspect there's an influence that, that maybe links the two. Yeah. So I guess I'll go to the moment first of the okay. of not getting into any of the vet schools. And I think it was a huge blow because again, when you, it's almost that I grew up with an expectation that I would become a vet. And there were people that doubted me or, or offered me any sort of negativity towards that as an ambition. So I never thought I would get a no. And when I got, no, not from one, not from two, but all from all four, I think it was devastating for a short period of time. But I think I understood that there were many roads to a single destination. And all of that kind of stuff, uh, is that then links to my parents, because that's the kind of influence that they had in my life from a very early age, that there are many routes to one destination. It's not about the destination it's about the journey and how you navigate the journey and all of that stuff so I understood that from a very young age and I think that was very much part of my foundation so that a setback an obstacle or hurdle was not going to be the thing that stopped me it was just that it was just a hurdle that I needed to figure out how to jump or how to go around and so my parents were my mother was she worked as an educator for the international, for a local branch of the International Planned Parenthood, so Family Planning Association. And my father was a civil servant. Um, so he worked to uh, find people vocational training, so on-the-job training. And um, so he worked in the civil service doing that. But they had both come to England as young people to study and work. And I think also understood that things did not always come in a life did not work in a straight line always and so that you always had to try to figure out a way to get around things and, and find another route forward and so they were hugely influential and another thing that my parents did that I think is that helped me become the person I, 
I am is they listen to my voice. So they listen to my voice and never try to shape my voice into anything different. So I was about four when I decided I didn't want to go back to nursery. I didn't, I had enough. I, I wanted to be with my mother and my mother was a traveling officer at the time. And so she just put me in the car and kept going. I didn't go back. And when I was about eight, I remember I'd, I'd come first in test in my, in my test and we were streamed in Trinidad. So I was in the B stream. I was streamed and I said to my mom, well, I came first in test, but I didn't get promoted to the A stream. And she went into my school, both of my parents, and they had, you know, all of these long conversations with the head so that they said, finally, yes, she can go into the A stream. And my parents then gave me the decision. Do you want to go or do you not want to go? And I said, I, I don't want to go. I want to stay where I am. They left me there and other parents would have said, well, no, you've got to go to the A stream. That means you're going to be more academic. It means that you've got ability. You're not pushed enough. But my parents didn't do any of that. They just kept me where I was and allowed me to just navigate my space. And in the same way, when I said, you know, I want to go to England, I was 18 years old. At no stage did my parents say, Mm, we don't think you're ready or this is a big move away from us. You're going really far away. They just said, okay. Well, they literally, I said I wanted to go and within less than 14 days, I was on a plane. That's what they did. I was going to say, did they buy the ticket or something? <laughs> less than 14 Actually, days. <laughs> there's, one in, there's one in your dad's top pocket ready to go, oh, well, funny you should say it. No. <laughs> Here's one I bought earlier. Yeah. That's a really interesting decision about staying in the B stream, not the A stream. Why did you make that decision at the time? And, you know, because you think about those moments of decisions. It's the summation of all the decisions we make in our lives that really mm. determines the quality of our lives. And, you know, f- many people, careers advice, parents would say, you know, there's a trajectory change in where you may end up based on the decisions you make. That feels like one of the ones in a traditional mindset of thinking where if you end up in the lower set, you're sort of disadvantaged from the off. But here we are, we're having a conversation and I'm curious about how that worked out for you. Like what happened in that? But I'm, I'm actually more curious about why internally, why did you choose B over A? What was that about? It was really simple. The teacher in the B stream was called Mrs. Green. No relation but everybody thought she was my aunt. And so I had lots of friends in class because everybody thought that I could have access to the teacher. They could access the teacher via me and the teacher wouldn't be mean to them via me. So I was comfortable. I was in a happy place. I was in a happy class. The teacher was very maternal and loving. Um, And the teacher in the A stream used to, at that time, corporal punishment was still in existence in Trinidad. And she, I could hear, because we weren't separated by, we were separated by very thin walls, and I could hear them getting spanked in the next room. I could hear them getting spanked and punished in the next room. So I was not having, that was not the life for me. I was very comfortable where I was. So <laughs> I did not want oh my to go So it was part network. Part, it, just, it sounds like a really good decision. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you didn't endure any like mental or physical scarring no being in the other side I was I was lucky there so but I think my parents again one of the things that my parents did is they let me feel that I had ownership over that decision but in kind of speaking to them and as as an adult 
they had had conversations with my teacher at the time, so Mrs. Green, and they had had those conversations to say, she needs to be pushed and she needs to be challenged. And are you able to do that if she stays here? And I think she was. So I, I ended up in the A stream the next year. So it, and I wasn't disadvantaged for long. So, yeah. Right. There's the nurturing effect of, of yes. Mrs. Green that had the, the help. I know that I sort of asking a little bit about, uh, you know, family and, and sort of uh, decisions and then that moment of rejection and getting over it. And, and perhaps let's stay with that. But actually, I don't want to leave decisions because that feels like a really important, interesting area to sort of explore a wee bit further as you move through your career. Yeah. What were the decision points and the big things that, that you reflect on and think, you know, wow, what is and what might have been positive or negative from those decisions? But in collecting yourself to get over that rejection, you had a plan. I mean, you, you sound like you were very, very determined and very clear in what that plan was. Um, your parents obviously gave you that support and helped you with the, the mindset of, you know, there's many routes to, from A to B. Was there any other things or processes or ways that you then picked yourself up? How did you get yourself from the mental state of, you know, crap, the the, the dreams in tatters here to, you know, screw it, let's do it, let's get after this in another way. You think back on that that process. Yeah, I mean, I think I had always had a lot of support around me. I have a really good friend network. I have a really good family. So I had, and again, regardless of what decision I make, my family's always just been yes, there's never been a, we think that's unwise or that that doesn't sound sensible. And so I had to be decisive from a very young age. I decide whether I go in the A stream or B stream and so decisions are expected. I'm not expected to linger on things for long. So if there's a problem, one of my father's mantras when we cried as children was what is the problem? And every problem has a solution. Every problem has a solution. So those are the things I grew up saying. So what is the problem here and how am I going to solve it? We're not going to linger on this for a long period of time. So I think I understood that I had a problem and I needed to find a solution. And and it was just kind of, let's move on. And, And I think if we kind of get through my life and the decisions I made along the way, they have always been, what is the problem here and how do I find a solution? And so all of the things I have done, to get to where I am now have been along the lines of what is the problem and how have I found a solution? And in some ways, the experience, the journey has become richer as a result of making a change, but it's always been in trying to find a solution to the problem that I've shifted direction or changed uh, gear. Also, I have have a belief in something greater. I have to say that. So I, I have a belief that I've always believed in myself, but I believed that there was always, I wouldn't have had the dream unless I was going to do it. I, the dream didn't just get planted in you for no reason. So if, if the seed's been planted, it's because it's going to blossom at some stage. And so my job was to work through and nourish and, and feed and do the things that I needed to do so that I could blossom later. So I think that that was also significant for me. That actually, I was listening to uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, mm. the audiobook version of that. And there's something in what you said there that was very reminiscent of of how 
he described, you know, life isn't just about the good things or the creativity. There can be meaning in, in suffering and just like actually owning something. And rather than asking what is the meaning of life, it's what meaning is life giving me the opportunity to have? And that's almost, ex- there's just an echo in, in the statement you just made there of, you know, this is a seed that's planted in me. So what must I do in order to make that seed grow? Like you've taken ownership of this gift, as it were, that was was given to you, this idea, and then made it happen. So then it sounds like you kind of went to work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How did that manifest? So you, again, it's just the detail of this is fascinating to me. You mean after I... You're at university and, you know, you, you know, you've made this decision to go into get a, um, you know, this, this background by doing your, a, a first degree in the sciences, but you've not taken your eye off the fact that there's this bigger goal. What did you learn from the rejections that then became a strength for you next time around that meant you got as many offers? Because you got offers from all of your applications second time around, right? Three out of four. Barking. Three out of four. Okay. And, and also, and I'm interested, and, and, and so far, we've not had any conversation about race here. Yeah. And it's not really deliberate, but I'm also at the back of my mind is, you know, you, you sound like you've got a valid idea of why you were rejected first time around. Is that idea, in fact, let me not put words in your mouth. Like, why do you think you're rejected first time around and you were accepted 75% applications second time around. And I'm sorry, I've already led that in a way and I didn't mean to, <laughs> but I'll literally shut up and let you take stab okay. at that answer. Okay, so to me, in my, in my mind at the time, my application was not strong enough. Right. I remember, so I remember putting in my application um, with the support of, I had, had some um, careers guidance people giving me some support and, and letting me know how to fill in this UCAS form, which I'd never done before. And were they supportive of your application? The original careers, the original careers support person said that I shouldn't bother, that it was not going to be a good idea. I wouldn't get in. I, I probably didn't meet the standard and all of that stuff. Again, I, I always knew that I needed to find people who would align with my vision for myself. Mm. And so if that person didn't align, it didn't mean that, that their opinion wasn't valid. It's valid to them, but I need to find somebody who, who aligns with my vision and who can help me move forward in the direction that I want to move in. So for that, it was kind of, well, I'm not going to use this individual, but I'm going to find somebody else who can, who can jump on board with this vision and get us going forward. So I had some support. And I think they hadn't had the information. I did not know the idea. Well, in my opinion, I didn't know that I needed to have lots of work experience. I'd done some work experience, and I think I kind of put in my application originally that I really wanted to be a vet. I always wanted to be one and that stuff. And I think I kind of did not. I went through a different way of communicating and expressing my desire and ambition uh, the second time around again I had spoken to so many more people I'd, I'd been going to vets and doing lots of work experience and done kind of horse and farm and the, the variety and just really felt much more confident in my ability to present an application and had been doing a science-based degree so understood that I had had a really solid foundation so I think my application the second time around was just much stronger as an individual who if in the mind of the person reading my application is, can she do this degree? Well, the answer is going to be yes, because she is determined. You can see how much work experience she's done. She's able because she successfully completed a science-based degree and she's motivated. So 
you know, I, I feel that my application the second time around was just a lot more, it was a lot more solid, it was stronger the second time around. Yeah. Um, when it comes to race, I'll, I'll, I'll keep race. So when it comes to race, I remember in the first application, because of course in, in Trinidad, we don't have to tick a box at all. So in terms of identifying where you feel you fall in where you identify as, as an ethnicity, and that's not something I had ever faced before. And I remember picking in the first one, I didn't know what to pick. And I said to my sister, she said, well, you're Black Caribbean, that's what it's called, Afro African Caribbean or whatever it was labeled at the time, a hundred years ago. And then the second time round, I remember picking a Black other because I thought, well, I don't know, I don't want to anyone to look at this application and bias me at, based on what they think I am. So I'm definitely black, but I'm just going to pick other so that you'll have to have a mystery in your head. And if you want to find out, then you'll have to ask me to, to uh, interview. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. And I just think it's fascinating the way that you've gone about and, and been very, not single-minded, very open-minded, but very focused. Yeah. And, on your objective is that kind of typical of Mandisa Green is that is that a trait that you've retained through the years yes I think so I think so I think I am if I have a goal or um, an ambition in mind I can be very single-minded I think becoming a vet was really different though because that was something that I had kind of embraced from a very early age and it was an identity that I took on in my, it's a role and identity I took on in my family and in my community. And my, it was kind of, that's what my parents said I was going to do. So everybody around me expected me to be a vet. So no one was surprised when I became one because it was what I said I was going to do. And it's this idea of if you speak it from a very early age, if you communicate it, then you have to then do it. You can't then decide you're going to change your mind. And I was not one of those people who was, uh, was fortunate enough to be very intelligent and not know what I wanted to do. I wanted, I knew what I wanted to do and I had to work really, really hard. So I had to then kind of be very single-minded and focused. And I often think it's blinkered because I didn't, I didn't even explore the idea of doing anything else. I didn't, right. at no stage did I say, huh, maybe I'll become a marine biologist or maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll become an artist. So I, I didn't explore anything else. I was, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to get it done. And so, yeah, I think for me that was for me and for my personality, that was very good, that I was able to fulfill a dream from childhood. And so the question that jumped straight into my head here is, so was it the right decision? How, oh, you know, has this been a career that, do you, is there, are there any regrets? Not at all. Not at all. For me, I think becoming a vet was more than I had imagined because I had imagined it from a very single focus of my family vet, a small animal vet, kind of seeing people Monday to Friday or on weekends for small, you know, for, for limited hours. And I think I thought that that was what I was going to be. And I didn't really understand what it would feel like. I didn't understand how I would feel kind of communicating with people and looking after their animals. And it just felt so much better than I thought it would. It felt so much better than I thought it would because in your mind as a child, you have a very, it's almost that like you can, distance. It, it looks really nice. It's like a dream. Right. And when you finally do it, it's so much better. And I, I don't feel that I'm at the 
at the end of my career or at the end of using my veterinary degree, I feel that I have so much more that I can do with it. And I think I didn't appreciate that as a child either, that I could I could go into different spaces and do different things. So I'm pleased to hear you say that because you've accomplished an awful lot. And sometimes, I mean, certainly when I graduated, if you if you'd been the president of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, you probably were of a certain vintage and probably were a little bit further down your career. But you're very early in your career, really, in many ways, and yet have accomplished so much. And so I'd like to come back and talk about that. But, you know, with, with the year you've just spent and, you know, I imagine through conversations with your your cohort of graduating classmates, the peers you've come into contact, not just in the last year, at the time you'll have spent on social media, that lots of people, I think there is this idyllic version of veterinary medicine that is sold or, or is there in the minds of many people who apply to come into the profession, whose then experience is fall somewhat short and they get disillusioned quite quickly by their experience in, in the profession. What was different in your experience or in your way of processing what you experienced that has led you to the point of really, you sound like your your love of veterinary medicine, where there are so many people burning out and leaving veterinary medicine? Because I, this feels, and I'm curious as to your opinion, whether you agree or disagree with this, but I fear we're at a, a point of not just decision, but serious existential threats to the viability of our profession right now, which was having a problem pre-COVID now has a huge problem with the increased number of pet owners out there, which sounds like a ridiculous thing to say because it's a, an amazing opportunity at a time where we are struggling to fulfill the opportunity because we're struggling to retain people within clinical practice. I wonder about what your experiences were and the moves you made and how you've fostered, or not just fostered, but you've continued to grow this love affair with veterinary medicine, this thing that you were destined to do. Mm. What are the differences in the decisions? And maybe we can tie the decision-making in there that you experienced, because I'm pretty sure it, it hasn't been all plain sailing for you, yet here you are enjoying it, representing all of us in this profession in the UK and just beaming from ear to ear when you talk about the profession. How do you get to there? And where are the differences and what's happened to you versus others? So I can tell you, for my journey, becoming a vet has been the ultimate goal in becoming a vet was not to look after animals. Okay, say more. The ultimate goal was to be of service to people. And this was how I was going to be of service to people, to others, by helping look after their loved ones. So their loved ones are their pets who they value, they're part of the family, and I can appreciate that. But the ultimate goal here was always to be of service. And so for me, it was finding the best place, the best position, the best environment that I could do my best in. So it was a vehicle. It was a vehicle. It was. Right. That resonates so much with why I wanted to be in, wasn't just, or it was medicine or veterinary medicine. It was exactly the same thing, mm. being a service to community. Mm. The community was everything. Where did you find your community? I grew up in a tiny village in Scotland and there was a, you know, there wasn't a super strong sense of community 
but there was a sense of community and and I always imagined going back to that community and being at the heart of it and being somebody that contributed to the well-being and the development of that community. <laughs> and I never went back to that community at all, <laughs> went south. But funnily enough, found my community, found a group, you know, people, clients, and that little community that you can get in a veterinary practice, serving clients in Southeast London. Mm-hmm. The world works in weird ways. So tell me more about this sense of service and and how that's played out for you. And I mean, that starts to piece together the decisions you've sort of made subsequently in your career, suddenly come into some fairly sharp focus there. So I think this could be a great blast off point to other parts of your career. But for the benefit of people who are listening, who are maybe not enjoying their career, I'm just really curious as to talk through your experience and how that thing, that wanting to serve others has enabled you through your chosen vehicle of veterinary medicine to thrive. Yeah, thank you. I think it's not always been easy to remember that. I think I can acknowledge that there are always challenging times and challenging cases and and challenging moments in our profession. So I'm not saying that, you know, it's some... utopia of if you kind of change your mindset to what you're doing that that's going to feel great but I think for me it really you asked the question about how I found my community I think in terms of my working world I just created my community and I think I was very good at trying to remain present in what I was doing so that every person that came to my consult room was as valuable as the person before and they were as important and they were as they were going to be as an honorable part of my family my community and I would treat them as such and it's weird because I feel I don't know that I've communicated that before in the way I've spoke about how I work but how I work is be present in the moment and treat each person as valuable as the next one and that can sometimes be a challenge depending on the personalities that come through the door but my goal in every moment is to do that. And so I spent a significant part of my career doing emergency work. And so those people I would never see again. So it's not like I could build up a relationship with them, but it was about being there, understanding what they needed from me and trying to find my best to do what I could, the best I could in that moment. So it's always for me working on my ability to be a better communicator working on my ability to be a better individual in terms of my skill so that I can increase how I can help. But it is very much about the relationship between myself and the individual and the animal is the way that I'm going to help them. And and so the way I'm going to help that animal in that moment is by doing my CPD and making sure I can do better, be better at diagnosing skin conditions or, you know, that kind of, because that's important the person I'm dealing with but I I need to work on my communication skills and those interpersonal skills so that that can also work smoothly and so for me it's always about making sure that me as the individual I as an individual am presenting and bringing my best self to each moment to each day and that's the way I've always gotten through it I've never 
I don't ever go to work with a, oh my gosh, I can't, I'm another day at work, I can't believe this, I hate this job. I've never gone to work like that. It's always, how am I going to be of service today? How am I going to show up and be the best that I can be and help? And if that's squeezing anal glands, well, that's what that day brings. But that's the way I turn up and that's the way I feel that I've navigated and been able to continually stay excited and motivated and interested in my career where do you get that energy from you know because it's it's not a uh you know bucket you can draw from endlessly without putting something back in i'm kind of curious about what you do to maintain that sort of energy that positivity or indeed where the fuel for that comes from i know where my fuel comes from but i'm super curious about where yours comes from well i think i'm not sure i have the the perfect answer for it for me it's again trying to make sure that my life is one that's been lived well and that I have been of service at the end of it I want to have done something good in the time that I've been on planet earth the short time and so for me it's a daily ambition to be the best that I can be I spent a lot of time not a lot of time but I spent a significant amount of time on my own walking kind of making sure that my thoughts are clear and my head is clear so that I can not take any baggage through the room. I think, yeah, I don't know. I think I just spend a lot of time working on myself. I think self, self-work self is really important. I always have. I think I started doing that at the age of 16, kind of trying to better myself. And it's always a constant endeavor for me to make sure that I can be the best that I can possibly be. Not in a harsh way. I think in my maybe my 20s, I was very harsh on myself, like, go faster, be better, be stronger. And as I've matured, I've realized that it's okay to be kind to yourself, uh, soften a little bit, accept myself as I am, but also to make sure that I'm responsible for the energy I take into any room and no one, I I don't need to take my my stuff with me into, (laughs) into any particular room. So I try really hard to work on that stuff. You have a little hook outside your room, a sort of metaphysical hook you can just hang any <laughs> external baggage on and just bring Mandisa, the agent of service, into the exam room yeah. and reset. I love that as a concept. How do you know if you've done a good job for a family or if you're doing a good job on something? You know, you used the word honouring earlier. How do you know if you've done a good job and you have sort of honoured that person, honoured that situation, done a good job clinically? Yeah, I, I don't know that there's ever any kind of, well, there, there, are, there are sometimes you get signs of external validation when someone says, thank you, you've done a really good job, or they go to the reception and say, yeah, that bit was awesome, I want to see that bit again. It was actually your mention of ER work that, that triggered the thought in my head, because I was, I was thinking back to a moment where one of my family members got quite sick, and we were ad- admitted somewhat peculiarly directly into sort of a sort of a referral situation, which, which isn't sort of supposed to happen, but I think I just blagged our way into it I remember the doctor with such clarity and how kind she was and how she actually probably got her butt kicked by her consultant pretty badly because he used to joke about it every time we go see him afterwards and say like oh you're the ones who sort of you know (laughs) showed up at the hospital and somehow got in kind of thing but I remember her with such fondness I wasn't able to because she was she was gone after like three days we didn't see her again 
because her shift ended and then she was on break and then you know the system the way the healthcare system works you're just gone and in, in another part of it and and it's so fleeting and the opportunity to actually you know it's not like a gp where you have a relationship and you go say hi you know you're working er yeah. it almost feels like that you know that sort of takes away that sort of moment of you know that ongoing thing that reservoir of connection that can be such a source of strength so I think the question really came from there, like, you know, knowing we're doing a good job seems like an integral part of being happy in the work we're doing. So I was just really curious as to how you how you refill, you know, what where your other sources of, of recharge come from. I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know. I remember when I was in vet school and I was complaining to one of my lecturers that we had to we had these spot exams, you had to swap stations, you keep moving, and she said to me, that's what life is going to be like as a vet. Every 10 minutes, you've got to reset. You've got to reset. You can't be thinking about what you left behind. You've got to move on. And I remember that being kind of in my head that I've got to reset constantly. And it's just about resetting. And on some days, there will be the end of the day that I'll still be thinking about the, the really complicated thing I saw at 10.30 a.m. And, and that that then stays with me. And I've got to then kind of research or communicate or call those, those clients and, and have a chat. But it's about constantly trying to, to reset and yeah, just be fresh for everyone. So yeah, I, I don't know that I have a, a place of a, another place of, of recharging. I just know that, that that's how I work. That's what keeps me present. That's what keeps me fulfilled because I'm not carrying as much stuff with me as I think. Um, and certainly when you said about the ER, I remember my son had had, he had to go to A&E when he was very young and I remember that idea of you, you just said that you met someone who spoke to you with such clarity and was so, you know, good and kind. And, and for me, those moments in my life too have been very instructional as to how I should behave when people come to me. And I always remember kind of, I don't even remember the name of the individual that I saw. I just remember that they were kind and they were clear yes. and they were calm and they reassured me in a moment where I was worried out of my mind and I couldn't think straight and you know with my background I should be able to think straight in the situation and know what the next step is going to be and I, I couldn't and just remember that and that idea of people will not always remember what you said but they will remember how you made them feel and knowing that and knowing that in every interaction that I do I have to be kind and calm and clear because in some situations, it's going to be someone worried out of their mind. In some situations, it's someone coming in with a brand new puppy and full of excitement. But I need to be able to communicate to them the stuff that they need to know to look after this puppy well. So it's just about that idea of kind of making sure that I am kind and clear and calm. And, you know, people don't care how much you know. They they, they want to know how much you care. So, yeah. That phrase i love what you said there people won't always remember what you said but they will remember how you made them feel and you know the the partner with that phrase of you know people don't care much you know unless they know how much you care that's something i hear a lot from people that enjoy their work mm -hmm. in veterinary medicine mm -hmm. like they've taken that internalized that made that real and put people much higher up the agenda and that seems to be one of the recurring things that separate people who are enjoying their work in veterinary medicine from those who are who are not. They've they've not worked out the people, the human element of this this game yet. 
I think that's kind of a nice place to sort of segue over into perhaps the work with the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. And I actually just want to start with a really basic question. With lots of American listeners here as well, you know, British listeners will be a bit more familiar, but perhaps not as familiar as they should be with the work that Royal College does. Because it's a bit like the sort of, you know, the government and it's got different, you know, arms of it, different branches of what it does. So maybe a, an easy opener is, you know, what is the Royal College and what are its functions in veterinary medicine? So the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons is a royal college that regulates. So it has a regulatory function. Uh, part of that is to regulate uh, veterinary degrees. So the accredited universities and veterinary degrees um, from UK universities. And another part is to regulate veterinary surgeons and veterinary nurses. And so part of that is to maintain public confidence in our profession and to ensure animal safety. So should there be any issue with a veterinary surgeon or a veterinary nurse, they will regulate that individual as well. In terms of its Royal College function, then that is the arm that does things like mind matters and diversity and innovation. And so that that's more of the supporting the profession arm, the professions. Um, and so part of what that does is to, to see where the professions need to be supported and fulfill those rules. Okay. And so you were voted as the president of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, which I was so thrilled to see. So here you are, you're the first black president of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Female is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you need no congratulations from me on that. But what I'm super keen to hear about is, you know, how was your year in office as the president. And I think we can break that down into, you know, what were the big plans that you wanted to bring to the table in this? How did the year go and what did you achieve? Okay, that's a big question. Tiny <laughs> wee question, you know. <laughs> <laughs> big question. So I came into office in July last year at a time, uh, a couple months after the murder of George Floyd and the huge movement with the Black Lives Matter movement, with everything kind of being very, I think for a lot of people for the first time, their eyes opening to the inequalities that existed in our society. And for me, I think it was important to acknowledge that moment. Diversity had always been an ambition of the Royal College, has been for many years, but I felt that we had to approach that with renewed intention I think it's one of those things that you can you can keep going with but you have to be able to have a really clear plan again with problems and solutions we need to have a really clear plan on how we intend to at least in our profession make sure that any inequalities have been addressed and certainly be making very positive moves towards addressing that so that was part of my one of my ambitions for the year Another ambition was really the, to celebrate the role of the general practitioner vet. I think you were saying, um, Dave, that so many people are, are kind of not getting enjoyment and happiness in their profession. And I have, in, in my own kind of, through my own lens, witnessed a lot of new graduates moving out of general practitioner yeah. uh, work, trying to find a space, or even whilst they're in vet school, deciding that which specialty they want to, to approach when they, they come out. 
and the idea that general practitioner work is actually so vital um, and so important and it might not have all of the bells and whistles but it serves a really meaningful role so that we can celebrate and champion that role a bit so that people at least in our professions we can understand that this is a really significant part to play in being of service. And so I think I wanted to make sure that we did that. And so we are, through our advancement of the profession committees, making moves to, to running a, a program to do that. And I think that's a really important piece of work. And the other thing I really kind of felt very mindful of is the EU exit, that we were approaching very quickly the idea that we were going to be exiting our a European Union membership. And it was really important to me because I could, I have friends who are European and had decided that they were going to leave. They had already made decisions. They, some people are pulling their children out of school. Some people are finding new jobs. And I could see through my own life that there were people deciding they were not going to, they, it was not worth it to them anymore to stay in the United Kingdom. And knowing how reliant our professions are on European graduates. For me, it was really important that we send the message to our European colleagues that their role in our veterinary community was important and we understood and we welcomed them regardless of what was going on in their wider community. Because I think there are so many factors at play in someone's decision to leave, but if you know that you are valued somewhere, if you know that your time, your effort is being valued, then you might see as opposed to just get up and leave because it's not worth it to you. So for me, it was really important that we send through those messages to our European colleagues that they were valued, we welcomed, they're valued and welcomed, and hopefully that would encourage them to see and also for those in Europe to decide to come. What have the highlights been and, uh, you know, what are the standout moments of the year been for you? And what are the things that are perhaps disappointments that you think, you know, we've started this, but there's still an awful long way for us to go? Good questions. Highlights. I think for me, the unexpected highlight has been the amount of outreach that I could do from my home. Um, I think I started <laughs> this and I think, like you said, I, I am the first black president of the Royal College. And I think that attracted quite a lot of attention to people who were working in communities and schools where they had a higher proportion of, of black students and, and ethnic minority students in general. And the idea that someone who was who was an ethnic minority could reach to the, the top of a, a profession like veterinary medicine was something that people wanted to hear about. And so I had been offered so many speaking opportunities and, and have been able to speak to so many school-aged children from primary school right up to university level um, about my experience and this idea of, I think, l not limiting yourself and the idea of size is the limit and if you can see it, you can be it and, and, and that kind of message. And so that for me has been one of the highlights of having the role. I think the other highlight and privilege has been a peek behind the curtain because I think I've always been a member of a Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons Council but never really kind of gone behind to see all of the hard work that's done on a day-to-day -day basis to make the Royal College work and how much work actually goes into it in its different departments, the registration, the communication, the IT, there's all of the work, you know, that that's just a few of the 
departments, but all of the work that goes in. And it's really opened my eyes to the really valuable work that the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons is doing on a day-to-day basis. So for me, those have been very simple, but really, really highlights of my year. I think you asked about challenges. I think for me, the challenges have been, one, the pandemic. It means that I could not get out to see people. And I think part of my I call it my, my superpower, is that I'm always able to relate well to people. But part of that is that kind of having those interpersonal skills, being around people, sharing stories, sharing experiences and being able to connect to someone. And that is so much harder to do on social via the internet and virtually so much, so much harder to do. But it meant that I had to work even harder. But it's been a challenge for me, you know, connecting with not just individuals, but with stakeholders at my council, just making sure that I work on myself to, to, to do that. But that's certainly been, for me, a really hard part of not being able to see people during the pandemic. And I think a really difficult and challenging part, too, was not having a, a vice president, a junior vice president, for so many months. So I had a period where our junior vice president stood aside whilst uh, an investigation was going on and subsequently stood down. And that meant our officer team was was one individual down. And I didn't realise until we had had our new junior vice president elected, Kate Richards, who was going to go on to be the president next year, how really important it was to have that support system in place that you have not just your voice only and and the senior vice presidents, but you have kind of more voices, more opinions, more perspectives at being involved in the conversation. So it's been really interesting. I think for me, it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been lovely to have Kate Richards now elected and have that support. I should qualify all of that. Yeah. (laughs) Now, yeah, I want to stay with your own, a mission. I wonder if your mission has changed in the light of events over the last year and, and this position. Actually, I should say for American audience, when we talk about the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, that's what vets are called in the United Kingdom. Because veterinary surgeons in America have done further training on that, uh, whereas where we graduate as veterinary surgeons over here and this side of the, the Atlantic. So uh, that just describes us all. But in, the, in over the course of the last year, I mean, obviously, one of the I, I just love this notion: if you can see it, you can be it, and you've become such an important role model. That starts a job, you know. Conversations with you previously, with Fabian, uh, previous guest on the show, and with many of our colleagues, you know, role modeling becomes you know it comes up again and again and again and again. It's such an important thing. One is always tempted when you have horrendous things like the murder of George Floyd and the, you know, the ongoing, you know, it seemed for a while, like we were just seeing media reports of ongoing police brutality in, in the U S here. Have we made progress? This is the, I'm not going to say it was the start of a journey. It's, it was the next installation in a, a very, very long novel, but have we made sufficient progress? Are you happy with the progress we've made as a profession? And I think, you know, it's, I just want to speak to the profession. There's clearly wider societal elements there, and and I don't, you know, maybe we can tease them apart. Perhaps we can. I'll leave that for you to comment on. But are you happy with the progress we've made? What more needs to happen? What are you not happy with? 
Good question. Thank you. I think we have made progress. I'll say that. I think we have made progress. And I think you're right. This is just but one installation in a very long kind of a very long change that we're hoping to see. So I think we have made progress and I think it, it's been good. In terms of, I know certainly for the for the last year, I have been very deeply involved with the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons and the work that's being done there and the engagement that's happening from the student level right through to the professional and all of the work that we're doing through the diversity and inclusion group to try to ensure that students are being supported whilst they're in school, in vet school, whilst when once someone's graduates to make sure that the practice is going to be receptive and welcoming. And I, I know the vet schools are doing quite a lot of work themselves. So I think progress is being made where this was this was not even a conversation when I was in vet school. Right. How many other black students were there in Edinburgh University when you were at vet school? There were none. None. And, and just in the vet school or just in your peer group, in your year group? So I always think of the students that I knew kind of years one to five. Yes. There were, there were no other black students. So there were no other black students. There were students of other ethnic minorities. There were other ethnic minority students, a couple others, but there were no other black students. And that was never even highlighted as something that needed to be addressed as an issue. Whereas now I think we're having conversations that that is not good enough that if mm. we need to do more, there needs to be more. That, and the questions are being asked, what more can we do? Um, which I think is, is really an improvement. What are the measures of success for you? Because there's progress being made. I'm kind of curious about what that looks like. But I'm, the most important thing is how do we know if we're succeeding as a society, as a profession in achieving the objective of greater inclusiveness from top to bottom or start to finish of the journey through veterinary medicine yeah so for me that there are three markers so first marker for me is that every student that every child that is eight years old and dreams to become a vet one day does not get told that they shouldn't do it or that that's not the profession for them or that they would not fit in so every child is given equal access equal opportunity equal information uh, to access the profession and to enter into it freely. So that's one. The second one for me is that we have no students reporting that they have been the victim of racism whilst they have been in practice, uh, seeing, e seeing practice doing EMS or on any farm or placement that is not associated with the university. Two. And three is that we have no professional reporting uh, that they have been the victim of discrimination or racism whilst they have been at work. So it's kind of enter well, train well, and work well. So I don't want to, the, the idea that we have all of these different phases of one's career, so pre-vet, vet school, and then once you qualify, for me, the ultimate marker of success is that those things are no longer an issue for any student, any any individual entering into our profession. Okay. So with that in mind, and I think you asked the last question yourself, I'm just going to reflect it back at you. What more does now needs to happen to build upon the progress to make this a more just, a more equal, a more accessible 
profession because we're not i suppose one of those measures will, will be does the profession actually reflect the communities that we all serve as a, a, a you know locally here in the uk but globally on a global stage as well and i know there's lots of work underway in you know partner countries around the world but f- from your perspective you know what more must we do are there any things that messages that you'd like to send out at this point what would that message be to the rest of us in the profession be stay engaged that's my one thing that i can think of i think we often it's easy in the moment to be carried being taken up with the wind of of, of the change that's happening but if it doesn't affect you personally it's very easy to become disengaged with it it's not your bag it's not your issue it doesn't affect your life generally on a day-to-day basis so why bother and I think understanding the greater need is to make sure that we have a more inclusive more equal profession uh, the greater need to understand that it's important that everybody has the ability to work in an environment where they feel free to do so where they feel that they are able to contribute in a way that's not going to be affected by somebody else's prejudice. I think that those those are things that should be important to us all. And in the same way that we take up other causes and other issues, I think it's really important in this one, even though it may not affect the majority of the people listening personally, I think it's really important to understand that an equal society for us all, an equal profession for us all benefits everyone at the end of the day. Um, I think diversity is such an important topic because I think people often think of it in one perspective, kind of, you think of it as a lot of people go straight to ethnicity, but I think it's really important for us to remember that diversity is is important in in so many ways. It's gender, gender identity, it's, it's sexuality, it's kind of chronic chronic illness it's um neuro um sorry not neuro a socioeconomic background so it's it's important that we make sure that we have a profession that's weaved in with all of these different perspectives because i think you were saying dave before about our, our profession reaching a stage where we may not be able to function as a profession to fulfill all of the need that there is and it's so important to bring in people who have different worldviews and different experiences and different perspectives so that we can all contribute to making our profession, making the job that we're here to do, which is animal health and welfare, making sure that that's done at its best because it's important that we um yeah, we invite other perspectives into it. And you know, the last maybe two, three years have at times been quite depressing and uh, you know, uh, it's my show, I can be as political as I like, so if you don't like this, you know, <laughs> I don't care. But, you know, there has been this sort of lurch to nationalism, populism, um, right-wing thinking that just seeks to reduce arguments down to the most base form. And then terms like wokery show up. So I have two questions. One is very simply, there's an inescapable truth here that we have a, a ridiculously low fractional representation of people from diverse ethnic backgrounds in a profession that, it, it, you know, it's a tenth of the number it, it should be there or thereabouts. Is that roughly correct? Yes. Okay. So that takes some doing to be that out of phase, that out of step. 
that's just the one of the dimensions that's under scrutiny or come under scrutiny in the last year. There will be many other dimensions that are out there. You make the point very, very validly that the inclusiveness uh, and embracing people from all manner of different walks and lives, backgrounds, experiences, it just increases the pool of talent and availability and the opportunity for all of society, all sectors of society, which creates a more just and more opportunities for people, creates a better better society for everyone, where everyone has that, that option. And yet here we are with Brexit, where we've shut down, I mean, potentially, you know, over a million EU workers have left the UK since that decision was made. Uh, restaurants can't, you're closing because they, they can't, you know, you've got the impacts of coronavirus as well, of course, but restaurants are struggling to staff because and, and are now sh- shutting hours, not doing lunch services. I read on the BBC website today, but restaurateurs are hurting. Multiple industries, particularly service industries where automation has not yet stolen all of our jobs, are hurting. Veterinary medicine faces a particularly acute version of this where we've now had a anywhere from 5 to 10% increase in pet ownership trend at a time where we've got a, an enormous loss of talent from our EU. And I completely echo that love for our EU friends who, you know, we need these human beings in our system working and we've created a huge barrier not just political barrier but almost an ideological barrier and rolled up the welcome mat and you know that feels like a really bad decision at a moment where we were already struggling so now we've got a drop in available workforce we've got an increase in pet ownership and potentially an increase in practice numbers as well corporatization isn't just swallowing up practices there are more practices opening this has set the scene for a hugely, hugely decisive moment in where veterinary medicine goes. Are you worried about the future? You know, for are the, the discussions you've been having within the Royal College, you know, are people switched on enough or do people believe that we have a genuine existential thought here or am I just losing sleep over nothing? And that's part one, Mandisa. Part two is I really wonder what your message to people who accuse anybody of talking about these issues and talking about diversity and inclusion of inverted commas, wokery. What's your message for people who have that as a viewpoint? That's part two, or that's a separate question, but there are the two. Okay, so in terms of you losing sleep, I think I would say don't, I wouldn't lose too much sleep. Not that it's not a problem, but we are working on the solutions, I think. We have, you know, new vet schools coming on to, opening up and providing veterinary education for a new generation of vets. We are working, uh, certainly in the Royal College, working really hard to try to make sure we retain vets so that we are not losing. So that's one thing, make a kind of training vets, but we need to also retain vets so that they're not leaving just a couple of years after they've been trained. So we need to make sure that people are fulfilled in their careers and to maybe provide, again, different ideas or aspects or allow people to see it from a different perspective and in the way that they can enjoy their their careers and and their contributions. So we're working on on that as well. And and we're working to increase the diversity going into vet school. So we're working really hard to try to, again, make sure that socioeconomic backgrounds and you know, ethnicity and, and things are considered so that we have a different, not necessarily a kind of 
uniformed pool of people going through the system. So we have people who might might be able to face different situations in a unique way and bring a unique perspective to things. And so hopefully we, we have we're working on all the sectors of our veterinary life to try to ensure that we do not end up in a situation where you use the word existential crisis. I think that that's, I always, um, I'm not yet at the stage where I've lost hope. I think we are, we're still at the stage where we, we are working on solutions to the problem. And until I see how that bears fruit, I think I will remain hopeful for our future as a profession. There is yeah. a way. Is your There's message. a way. <laughs> Every problem has a solution. Every problem has a solution. I'm so listening. I'm listening, Mandisa. It's all going in. <laughs> And your message for people who accuse anyone or her dismiss, not accuse perhaps, but dismiss the conversation is uh, around much of what concerns particularly the younger generations who are perhaps driving this conversation more and are the instigators and drivers of change here, as perhaps was always the way with the things that matter to the generations that are coming next. What is the message for those that dismiss this as just walkery? Yeah, I think for those that dismiss it as wookery, I would say it's going to happen regardless of what you think about it. I think unless someone is open to accepting that there is a problem that needs to be fixed, there is no speaking to that individual's point of view. If someone is so fixated on one point of view and they're not open to receiving or to understanding a different perspective, then there is no speaking to that. So this will happen, regardless of what name you give it. We are going to make change and it will happen. This is a new generation and we're all committed to making our profession, our professions, a better place for us all to live in and work in. It's happening. It's It's happening. happening. All right. So let's segue into our sort of short form questions now. You actually, you mentioned your superpower earlier in the exam room. And and I think that sort of connecting with people and being able to give people your attention, it sounds like a a particularly marvelous superpower. What's your kryptonite though? I don't know if this answers the question, but I'm going to say it, is the letting go of the hard cases. So, you know, we all have cases that uh, stay with us a little bit longer. Um, We often think to ourselves, well, I often think to myself, did I do the right thing? Is this going to turn out okay? Was I done any better? And those ones, they still sometimes keep me up at night because I am going over it, turning over and over uh, the situation and and trying to play it all the different ways that it, it could have gone. It's usually down to me in the moment not being there, not being my best, not being, you know, for, for whatever reason. But th- that's the thing that I say is, is my weakness. I, I still yet to say, I always thought when I graduated, you know, give me three years and I'll be perfect. And I, I won't have to, you know, think, re- kind of be chewing over this stuff over and over again. And I thought three years. And then when I got to three years qualified, I thought five years. And then I got to five years, I thought <laughs> ten years. And it's, it still is with me. And I think I have to accept that that's going to be one of the things that stays with me. The hard cases, the ones that, you know, the ones that stick with all of us, um, it still sticks with me. And I, I think that's my, that's my kryptonite. It's the downside to having a conscience, I'm afraid, isn't it? It is. You ever, don't wish for that to go away too quickly. Mandisa, that's actually that that a lot of people 
young vets, that's one of their biggest struggles is how to switch off and not just process all of the, and I think what you're talking about is times where perhaps things didn't go as well. But I think a lot of our colleagues, particularly younger colleagues, then worry about everything that might happen, even if they've done quite a good job. How have you worked with those thoughts? You know, are there any things that you've done to improve your ability to, you know, it's not a matter of conscience if you've done a good job and now you're just, you're catastrophizing about all the other things that might happen. I think that's something a little bit different to, oops, I could have been a little bit better version right up to, oh crap, I really screwed that up. But are there any things that you have worked on or tools, mind tools or processes or things you do to disconnect and switch off to, to create that barrier buffer zone between the professional you and the, you know, the, the rest of your life you? Yeah, I think for me, I probably one of the, the blessings for me, and I, this is not what I'm saying is going to be a, a cure for or a solution for everyone, but one of the blessings in, in my veterinary career is that I had uh, children early on in my career. And um, so it meant as soon as I walked through my door, my attention was being taken by a baby or, you know, a toddler or someone needing my attention straight away. So I learned very early on. And I, I think if I'm being honest, it probably it was that then coincided with me being a couple of years graduated. So I don't know if it was a natural progression or it was because I had something else uh, focused, to focus on, but I would make a conscious effort to walk through my door and leave it behind. I would leave it behind, irregardless of how my day went. There's always going to be in any particular day, especially if you're someone who wants to be the best and do the best, there's going to be in any particular day things that you thought could have gone a bit better, whether it be the way you said something, the way you injected something, the way you diagnosed something. It could always have gone better, but it's really important to understand that for me, it was really important to understand that I had always done the best I could on any particular day. And tomorrow might be better. It might be worse. I don't know. I'll go up tomorrow and see what happens. But in this moment, I did the best I could to leave it behind and walk through the door. And so for me, it was about almost that walking through the door of my home and making sure that that was a sanctuary and it was not going to be penetrated by my, I was not going to regurgitate to my husband or, or my baby who couldn't understand me what happened that day and what went wrong or what I could have done better or different I was going to be present for them because again every part of my life is important to me and that my family time my time with my loved ones was equally as important to me and I was going to my intention is to be present for that as well so I'm not going to be bringing did I mix that thing properly? Did I do the injection right? Did I say the right thing? Did I offer them the right options for uh, referral? I did the best I could on that particular day and that was the best I could do. And I think it's really important for, I think, young and new new graduates to recognise that there is always going to be in any particular situation something that you, you feel that you could do a bit better, a bit different. But as human beings, we are all human. No one expects anyone to be superhuman and no one expects anyone to be perfect all the time. And mistakes are not the end of the world. People make them all the time. We all make mistakes. And so that's not something to be afraid of. So I would say for me, 
the real important thing for me was to, to enjoy my life outside of being a vet. And, and I, I think I knew all along that being a vet was not the be all and end all of my life. I needed to do it because that was my goal, but there was other stuff I wanted to do with my life. And I was going to make sure that that was equally as important. Being able to identify with other things beyond just being a vet, which given your your sort of origin story into veterinary medicine, you know, it's it's awesome. You know, it's just nice to hear you that balance. You found that balance quite naturally. Yeah. I wonder if that pertains to that desire to serve, because uh, you know, we serve our our kids really. Your service to the profession and being the the president of the Royal College, the service to your community through being a veterinarian. You're kind of honouring a lot of people by doing all of that work. Thank you. I hope so. This is why I love these conversations so much because I just other worlds open up and light bulbs go off, and it's it's fantastic. So, next question was: What was the best piece of advice you've ever received? There's so so many. You can go for a top three if you want. <laughs> okay. So the most comforting piece of advice I received was when I graduated. I went to the place I'd done my home practice that I'd done my EMS in just to tell my my elder vet that I'd graduated and I, I'd, I'd passed and, and he kind of supported me through all of my for year three to, to finishing and he said this is not the beginning of the end it's the end of your beginning and he kind of said you are going to be great and so that I was able to put my vet school experience into a compartment and it was not going to kind of linger behind me it was just part of the experience it was the end of my beginning and I was going to go on and be a vet and that was going to be a new a whole new chapter in my life and I think that was the most comforting piece of advice and the one that has stayed with me through all is people make the best people Make the best of the. I'm gonna forget it now. It's not a great piece of advice if I've forgotten it. But people who turn out best are the people who make the best of the way things turn out, which basically says that you don't know how life is gonna be, but you have to make the best of it. And I had always had that. I have got a little plaque that my parents gave me when I was a teenager, and I still have it with me. And that's what it says on it. I was looking, I was in a moment of complaining, not complaining, but having a mental moment of feeling sorry for myself that I wasn't getting to go to all these congresses and, and do all of these things, all of these graduations and stuff during this year of being president during a pandemic. And I just looked and it was right in front of me and I thought, okay, so I could not have predicted that this is the year that it was going to be, but I need to make the best of, of what was in front of me. So that's another good one. Yeah, up to you. Now, is there a book that you have either given or recommended or read that has made the biggest impact on you that you would like to recommend to your colleagues? The Power of Now, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I think that for me was that one, but The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Those are two books that I read quite early on in vet school that allowed me to realize and, and kind of and one the the alchemist was about fulfilling a dream and that in the end the dream the dream was always kind of inside you anyway and so that was a really good one and, and the power of now in, in trying to remain present to life and, and to what life is bringing and a new one this is the first time i've asked this question mandy so this is this is my honor moment to you okay. 
which we'll probably only be able to ask of, of, of actual practicing veterinarians or clinical team members, but do you have a favorite piece of equipment in the practice? Like what's your, what's your favorite toy? <laughs> I don't, the thermometer, that's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite. Because the thermometer will give you unexpected results. And you think you know it all and you put that thermometer in, you're going to get a different result than you thought you would. So no, I, I don't we have a piece of kit I think for me the thermometer is the, the most magnificent um, kind of tool we have because I think when you do everything that you can the thermometer usually gives you a different result it's not usually but it can sometimes give you a different result than you thought it was going to so it's always surprising me it's the last thing you wouldn't give away yeah all right so now imagine you can send and you can choose your vehicle of delivery but whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter. But you can send a, a picture or you can send a, a tweet, you know, a, a short message, and it can hit every phone of everybody in veterinary medicine. What would the message say? Or what would the picture be? That's a good question. It would say, life is good. Enjoy the now. And... Now I'm going to have you transport back in time to the moment of your graduation back in Edinburgh. You just walked out, perhaps you're strolling in the meadows with a champagne flute in, in hand. Were you there? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine. <laughs> I was close. I was close. But what piece of advice, if you could go back and whisper a little piece of advice in a quiet moment after graduation in your own ear what would it be you are enough love it mandisa before we sign off then are there any any sort of final thoughts for the listeners you'd like to leave or share before we wrap up no i think you, you covered it but I, I would like to say to you know for any new graduates who have had to face this very unusual world of work where you don't have the same you know you're not able to socialize in the same way not able to interact with your clients in the same way and particularly maybe not getting those kind of instant validations of, of yourself that it will all this is temporary and it, it will all get better I think it's really for me important to recognize the context of what, what you're doing and this is actually harder than any of us have done. So all of us who graduated and, and were able to kind of go out and be in practice and go into a farmhouse and kind of make relationships, you're not getting to do, do that in the same way. And that this will all get better, but recognize that what you're doing is, is harder than any of us have done. So just really be proud of yourself, be proud of this moment. And that, yeah, you've achieved great things being able to, to enter the world of work in this time. So just to them. That's a very serious point and a great point, Mandy. So like we, as in every senior member of the profession who had a final year where they could go out and do externships or EMS or whatever your name in your country for that, that seeing practice and gaining experience process is, had it easy compared to the last two years. Yes. And we have got such a responsibility to put an arm around these two generations and make sure that they feel welcome and supported, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and recognise that we probably do not have any... I always think, unless you walk a mile in someone's shoes, you don't know what they're going through. 
And we have not walked a mile in the shoes of these new graduates. They are doing it by themselves with no one having, no one in our profession in this time having ever walked a mile in their shoes. So really recognizing the the challenges that they're facing and accepting that they're doing a brilliant job. Um, And like you say, we're, we're all responsible for putting an arm around these you know couple years and, and just making sure they understand that they're doing a really good job and they're welcome here and it's temporary but we recognize that it, it's difficult at the moment well, thank you for raising that and, and flagging that up mandy so it's so important if anybody wants to get in touch or follow you on the socials where do you like your engagement uh instagram uh is dr mandisa the vet and you can find me at Twitter at Mandisa Green One and Facebook and LinkedIn is Mandisa Green. So you can find me on all of those mediums, but I am probably most active on Instagram at the moment. So, All right, Mandisa, such a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Thank you for taking this time out to chat and, you know, congratulations on a, you know, a very difficult and imperfect, but as is abundantly clear to me, you know, you made the best out of a, a difficult circumstance and like, just really, really happy to have gotten to know you a bit better and have this time and be part of the same profession as you. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's been an, an amazing conversation and I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. So that's it for today's show, folks. Was that not just an awesome episode? Thank you so much to Dr. Mandisa Green for being a tremendous guest. That episode was long overdue. And thank you, as always, to you for listening. Now, if you are enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, letting us know what your thoughts and letting everyone else know what your thoughts are on the show. That helps to build the listener base and that helps us to keep making more episodes. And also... If you know anybody who would benefit from hearing this episode, please forward it to them so they also can hear the wise words of Mandisa. All that remains is to say goodbye from all of us here at Vetex International. And until next time, be safe, be well, and be happy.